You're listening to episode 43 of the Becoming Aligned podcast. Welcome to Becoming Aligned, where we'll step away from the busyness of our days to explore what it looks and feels like to create meaningful lives that align with our personal values. My guests have found their own unique way to navigate through the distractions, the pressures, and the expectations of everyday life. And in the process, they've discovered the freedom to be truly themselves, to tune into their own heart, and to honor their own unique voice. I'll explore what motivates them, what challenges them, and what strategies help them work towards their goal in a way that nourishes their mind and body. I believe everyone has a story to share, and then we become a stronger community when we're able to listen and learn from those around us. I'm your host, Maureen Ryan, the founder of Ryan Wellness. I'm a Chicago-based self-discovery mentor and Pilates instructor. I hope these conversations will serve as inspiration and as a reminder that it's not about perfection, but the process of becoming aligned. In this episode, I talked to Vincent Toro. He's a poet, playwright, and theater performer and director. He also describes himself as a devout educator, which I think is really beautiful. I actually found myself using the word beautiful repeatedly during our conversation. I am personally drawn to artists because of their ability to see things, to see things in this world and express these truths in such a way that it offers the rest of us a new perspective and allows us to think differently and more deeply about the world around us. Vincent has so many beautiful nuggets of wisdom to offer as he shares his story. I so enjoyed our conversation and hope you do as well. But before we get started, I want to invite you to connect with me by subscribing to the Becoming Aligned newsletter. This is an email I send out every Sunday where I share information about the podcast and my reflections on Becoming Aligned. And the newsletter, I also share what I've been reading, watching, and listening to that's been inspiring me along my Becoming Aligned journey. And I invite you to share what you've been discovering for yourself as well. I offer some reflection questions to help you pause and reflect as you prepare for the week ahead. And starting in February 2021, I'll be sharing some restorative care ideas to help you stay grounded and connected. Check out my website at maureenryan.co to subscribe. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Vincent Toro. Hi, Vincent. Thank you so much for joining me on the Becoming Aligned podcast. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited about this talk. Yay. Well, Vincent, I wanted to have you on because you're someone who I see using your voice in a way that seems really aligned and true to who you are as a person. You know, through your poetry, you have a way of really cutting through and getting to the heart of things. And I've also had a chance to experience the ways in which you create community. And I know that's something that's really important to you. So I'd I'd love to take some time today to explore how your voice and your perspective has developed over time, you know, as a poet, a teacher, and as a community builder. So I'm hoping you're open to kind of diving into some of those topics today. I am. I'm hoping that I can share something that's useful or interesting. Sure, absolutely. (laughs) I know. I'm I'm confident that you will, Vincent. I'm sure of it. Um, Yeah, but before we dive into those topics, could you start us off by just telling everyone just a little bit about yourself? Sure. I will try to keep it basic. (laughs) um, I'm I'm a poet, a playwright, theater performer, director, and an educator. Those are the things that really define me Mm. Um, in terms of like not only my work, but really my my life's trajectory, like my Mm. narrative. Um, And, you know, on the periphery of that, the stuff that I'm doing when I'm not working, I am a coffee enthusiast. (laughs) I am uh, I'm a doting husband and I'm I'm kind of a cat worshiper. So (laughs) those those are the first things that I think about. yeah, so I, I have an MFA in poetry, and, and I, I, te- I was teaching poetry in the schools mm. for a long part of my career and also theater in the schools. 
now I run a youth arts program, so I'm the director of the program, hmm. and I kind of teach. I teach undergraduates how to teach, in effect, oh. and then then we we mentor them, and then they actually teach high school students in uh, in, in in arts classes. So, and then I'm also a professor of English um, as an adjunct lecturer at City University of New York's Bronx Community College. I think that kind of sums it up. Wow! Yeah, and you've also published. As far as I know, at least two books of poetry. I might be missing some, but I'm definitely aware of two books of poetry. Um, Tertulia, your most recent one, and then oh, I'm forgetting the first one. It's um the so the the one that's out right now is Tertulia by Penguin Random House for okay. sure. And then my first book was called Stereo Island Mosaic. It came out in 2016 yes. by a, a, a small but wonderful poetry press, Asada Press. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And I have, I think I have five stage theater productions too. Those are, wow. those are kind of the, the artistic works that, you know, I, I've done a lot of different projects, so it's really hard for me to always say what I've, what I've done. Yeah. But the ones that are kind of time-stamped is I, I've had five official stage productions and I have these two books of poetry. So that's correct. Wow, along with teaching and all of the other things that you do. So you are a busy, you are a very busy, busy person, I would take it. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't feel so much now that we're all in quarantine. Yeah. But I guess, I guess I've always kind of been, uh, I, I come from a family of like almost hyperactive, like we're, we're, we're doers. We like yeah. to be up on our feet. Like my parents are never home. I'm, I, before quarantine, I was a person who was never home. I, I think my instinct is just to always be out in the world and doing things, you know? Mm. Well, I'm so glad you mentioned your, like, your younger years, because I would love to take it back for a little bit and just, like, dive into, you know, what you were like as a younger person. It sounds like you were always doing things. And when you say doing things, like, what were the things that you would kind of get lost and absorbed in? Like, what was Vincent like as a younger person? Yeah, well... I I think it depends on how far back you go. I, I, I tend to feel like, in hindsight, I've lived many different lives and been, been many different people. Mm. Um, I think some of that's been instinctual and some of that has been kind of deliberate and mindful. But if, if you're going all the way back, as far as I can remember, I was I, my students can never believe this, but I... Um, I was a really shy and quiet kid when I was very young. Mm. Um, and to be quite frank, that had to do with the fact that I, I was raised um, in what I really can only call, uh, you know, a toxic and abusive environment. Okay. Um, so there were levels of abuse that I was privy to from family members. And also in my community, I think I grew up in a working class community mm-hmm. that had its own toxic masculinity issues. So when I was home or with family, there were there was kind of, it was never comfortable. Mm. Um, there was always uh, some form of abuse, but then even when I stepped out into the neighborhood or to go to my school, there was, you know, bullying and, and, and other kinds of violent acts. And I think that that made me to be the type of young person that really retreated. Mm. And I don't think that really changed until I was about in high school when I made a very deliberate decision, um, which I think was kind of a bold one, for like a 15 year old kid to make was that I just was going to be a different person. Huh. Um, and, and actually it's, I'll, I'll try to make it brief, but it's a really interesting yeah. story that that's, it kind of feels, it almost feels untrue, but I lived it, which is that, you know, I, I had up until about 15, I had really been confined and oppressed by, by those feelings of toxicity and abuse. Mm. And so I grew up with feeling a lot of fear and um, when I was 15, I went to Puerto Rico. I used to go about every, every summer, every other summer to see family. Um, there's, a, there's a famous mountain there in the rainforest. Of a, it's El Junque Rainforest. And I was 15, and my friend and I climbed to the top of the mountain. And when I got there, I, um, I asked the, the, the Taino god, Yokahu, to, to give me... Uh, to, I, I said to Yokahu, please don't let me have a normal life. Mm. Um, and and I promised that I would do something to make sure that 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 would happen, you know. Mm. Um, and so from there on, things were very different after 15. But before 15, I was re- I was kind of reclusive. And so the um, the activity really that I got lost and absorbed in is 
reading. Yeah. Um, reading really became my refuge. Um, I was often told my wife this story. She was always like, you should tell people this story more often. Mm-hmm. But I think because of the instability in my household, yeah. I, I often didn't want to be home. And when you're a young kid, there's not necessarily a lot of places that you would go. I would retreat to the library, mm. right? Um, I would go to the basketball courts for a little bit, but usually my, my boys would end up going home, and I'd find myself like still not wanting to be home. Yeah. And so I just found myself in the library because it was a quiet space. Um, there's a, you know, the instability of my home also meant it was a very loud mm-hmm. kind of experience, and so just a quiet place. Nah. And, you, you know, it, it, I, I don't think I would necessarily go there to read, hmm. but because it was a library, eventually I did read. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, I give my mother credit, too, because she had a thing where, you know, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. And so she was very rigid about buying me toys when I wanted it and demanded it or whatever, as kids do. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, it was like, I'm not going to buy you anything. We're going to the store. Don't ask me for anything. Mm-hmm. But she had a rule that if we were at the mall or at the store um, where there were books, if I asked for a book, she would Aww. never say no. Aww. Yeah, and, and I think that that had to do with the fact um, my mother at the time was a high school dropout because she had been very young. She ended up getting her GED later. Okay. So I think education was something that was important to her. And so that was kind of her way. Even though there weren't books in my house and my parents weren't readers and my parents didn't have degrees, it was something she wanted for me. So I think those two things made me made me see reading as this, at a very young age, this sacred place, mm. this place of refuge where, you know, all the other craziness I was experiencing in the outside world, um, it I could... I don't know. I, I don't know how to put it. I wouldn't say that I, I it would it would fend it off or keep yeah. it at bay, but it it maybe gave me some tools to kind of retreat for a minute and heal and yeah. like engage with the world in a different way. Although I didn't know it was that when I was a kid. I just knew that reading made me feel safe and that I liked you know reading stories or whatnot. Yeah, it's beautiful that you found that and that you found that library and I you said something like. You know, it was almost for the quiet initially for the library, but then, you know, then you started maybe doing more of the reading. Like, what were there any books that you really remember that really engaged you or that started to kind of really pull you in even more? Do you remember any of that, or is that going back too far? Um, I, I remember just picking up a lot of different stuff. When I was really young, it was a lot of, like, nonfiction versions mm-hmm. of kids' books. Like, just hmm. a very interested in science and history. So if there was, like, a kid's book about, like, an important figure, pro- probably athletes and, and, and artists, because even back then that's what I was interested yeah. in. I do remember the getting hooked on, when I was a kid, they had these things called Choose Your Own Adventure books. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Yeah, Those and so, like, the, if for, for anyone who might not know, Choose Your Own Adventure book is exactly what it sounds like. It's, <laughs> it's a book that's telling a story, but at different sections of the story. You actually get to choose which direction you want the story to go. Mm-hmm. You make choices. And so it's great because you end up, you can reread the book five or six or seven or eight times, and there's all these different outcomes. And I, I do remember that those kind of got me hooked. Um, the, the first book that made an impact, I was a little bit older, I want to say I was maybe 12. Okay. Was I read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, wow. And, and, and it's, it's a silly book, but it's actually a really cerebral book that's highly intelligent. So in between all the jokes, there's some really powerful stuff about like physics and science and the cosmos and the human condition that I mm-hmm. think really captured my 12 year old brain. And it's the kind of book that I've, I've probably read every five years. Oh, wow. Then. Yeah. Oh. It's one of those books that I return to. And, and honestly, it only gets better. I remember reading it at 12 and I remember reading it at 25 and I remember reading it at 40 and and there was just more and more there to pack in this silly little book about a guy hitchhiking across the universe. <laughs> That's really beautiful. I love that. That's really beautiful. Uh, okay, Vincent, you mentioned something there that you, um, when you turned 15, you made this conscious decision to make a change, like very deliberate, it sounds like, and intentional. And then, yeah. so if I was to see you like a before and an after, like what change would I have seen happening at the age of 15. And I'm actually just kind of curious, like, like how did that, like, yeah, so let me just find out like what it looked like first and then I'll dive in, I guess. Yeah. I mean, 
I, who knows what it looked like when I was really young. Yeah. I don't think we're very... We're, I probably kids now in the age of the selfie are more are more aware of what they actually look mm-hmm. like and, and their own performativity. So I don't really know. I, can, I know what it felt like. I, I was a kid who felt really anxious all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, was, I, I, I would be even afraid to do things. Like if an adult asked me a question, I was afraid to answer. Yeah. Because I was afraid that, like, you know, um, getting smacked or something would follow. Um, mm-hmm. At school, I was afraid to even do certain types of work if I felt like I didn't know how to do it because I just felt so much pressure. Yeah. So it just, it just felt like a very reclusive. I mean, maybe if you talk to someone else, they'd be like, no, he wasn't like that at all. He was loud or he was, I, I don't know. Yeah. But you yeah. know what it felt like. Now, I, you know, by the time you're in, you're in high school, you do have a stronger sense of, like, who you are. Uh, outwardly, and so I think that when 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 I made this kind of big bold, you know, what a diva I am, dramatic declaration at the top of the mountain yeah. at 15 years old. Um, I didn't know what that meant, but I remember coming down the mountain and and just starting to make decisions that that went against what my habits were. Mm. Um, and 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 the big thing was kind of deciding to say yes to things and to try things. Oh, cool. Um, but, but I also think I just wanted to be someone that I, that I, that I wasn't because I didn't feel powerful. Mm-hmm. And so, I, you know, in high school, there's a lot of pretentious performativity, and I certainly was guilty of that. So, like, it, and this I don't talk about this uh, much because it's kind of embarrassing, but all my, all my oldest friends know this. I, I ended up taking on a persona of someone who I, who I thought exuded that kind of outward mm-hmm. power that I wanted within my limited framework. So also around the age of 15, I became obsessed with the band The Doors. Oh, and okay. so I became wholly obs- obsessed with Jim Morrison. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and so I really like, I down to like fake pants that look like they were leather and like ruffly shirts and like even trying to move the way that he moved. And he was always like quoting philosophers and just saying, like, really snarky but clever <laughs> stuff. And so I started to, like, do those same things. I, was, I would just, like, memorize quotes from philosophers. I probably didn't even know what, the, what, what they were saying, you know. <laughs> um, but just I wanted to have, like, this, this stable of things that I could be, like, spouting, mm. you know, poetic things. Um, and so th- that's what it looked like. I was just like annoying kid <laughs> who was pretending to be some guy who had, who had been dead for like more than a decade. Um, but I think that it, it, you know, young people are, are smart. I think mm-hmm. that even then I knew that it, that that wasn't what I was trying to be, but that somehow it was, it was almost like a performance. Yeah. Like I'm a theater person. Per- performances are about activating something, right? Mm-hmm. When you're on stage, you're you're creating an energy to to activate an idea, to activate a connection with an audience. And I think that I was activating. Mm-hmm. Um, it was kind of like a fake it till you make it. So I was activating yeah. this kind of um, uh, confidence that I wanted to have, and like this idea as an artist and an intellectual. And it really did lead me. To, to those things because I, I soon after started writing poetry. I, I then decided, you know, I first read Morrison's biography and then again the book was so rife with like all of these references to like French artists and like, you know, avant-garde musicians, you know, bands like the Velvet Underground and like the German philosopher Nietzsche. And so I just decided I was going to read all the books that he had referenced oh, and I was so going to cool. research all of the artists that had influenced him and ended up you know years before there was google (laughs) i was like doing my own google search of like all of this this artist influences that led me into like these really other exciting realms and idea of ideas and i think that's how i started cultivating in a house again that wasn't really a house of intellectuals where there were books in the house yeah it was really my way of like forging a path towards like living the life of an artist and an intellectual yeah, and I was lucky to find a mentor a few couple of years after that that was able to help me help sh- me shape that all in a more productive way. Oh, you so this is exactly what I was going to be asking you because I was going to ask you when when did you start writing, which you just basically you know answered. But then I was also going to you know ask like, was there someone that you looked up to that was writing like, and did you start off writing poetry or 
you know, what kind of form were you writing in before that? And they, and yeah, and then like, was there someone that kind of guided you um, into pursuing writing? Yeah, I. So I think the first things that I wrote were were, were really bad rap songs. <laughs> um, because it's interesting. My my other big influence around that time, I remember I was probably also around fifteen. It could have been a little earlier, maybe fourteen. Maybe 13. I'm trying to think of the year of the record. Anyway, I had a friend of mine who gave me a cassette of Public Enemies. It takes mm-hmm. a nation of millions to hold us back. And again, I thought I, there I saw another model of a man who was, who was acting as confident and powerful mm-hmm. as I wanted to be. And I became obsessed with Public Enemy. And, and I just thought MCs were so confident and powerful yeah. that that was also something that I wanted to like really perform. And I just really loved the music. I've always been kind of way into music. Even that I remember going back to five years old, I just remember the way music made me felt. And so when I heard, first heard hip hop, I became enthralled. Mm. And so I had this idea of like, well, you know, I'm going to be an MC. Um, and so I wrote really, really black, bad rhymes. But, um, <laughs> but, but what ha- ended up happening was I ended up showing that same trip at the age of 15 to Puerto Rico was actually uh, coincided with my, one of my aunts getting married. Mm. And so it was one of those occasions where, like, both the family from the island and the family that was from all over the mainland had come to, you know, we were all in the same space. Yeah. And so I ended up meeting a woman there who was uh, a, a distant cousin of mine who I had met when I was very, very young and hadn't seen in a long time. But I knew I had heard about her because in the family, she was kind of considered the black sheep because she was like, she was an artist and she uh-huh. had given up this like, she'd given up a Wall Street job to go and become a playwright and... You know, wow. like a working class Puerto Rican family, like they disapproved of that. Yeah. So they talked about her in such negative terms. But to my young ears, Aww. she sounded like a rebel. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which she was. Yeah. And and so I ended up talking to her at my aunt's wedding. And maybe because I knew she was an artist, I had done something I hadn't done with anybody else before, which was in the middle of the conversation I mentioned to her that I write. Oh wow! And 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 so what happened was she actually she said, "Well, can I see some of, some of what you wrote?" And I and I and and I was so scared. But again, I remembered that this promise that I had just made to myself. Yes. To like, you not retreat. So I went to my room and I got my notebook, and I gave her that notebook for the evening. And I remember not sleeping that night that she oh. was in her hotel room with the notebook. And I and then in the morning we all came back to breakfast. And I didn't see her at first, and then she showed up at the time with her partner, who ended up being her husband, and they sat down, and they looked at me, and they said to me, oh, my God, you're a poet. Oh. And, and, and I, I, I've told this story before. I, t- I tell this story a lot in schools. I, I do a lot of school visits when yeah. I perform. Yeah. And, and um, because I tell that story because of the power of naming. Yeah. Because up until that point in my life, I had really – the things that I had been called are things you don't want to be repeated, very mm-hmm. negative things. Mm-hmm. And and we really do perform the identities that are projected onto us mm-hmm. by people. And so when you're told your negative things, like stupid, for example, I, I had remember hearing I was stupid my whole life. So, mm-hmm. so okay, I'm stupid. And being heard, having heard mm-hmm. that I was a poet was probably the first time someone named me mm-hmm. in a way that didn't feel negative and oppressive. So I was like, oh, okay, I don't know what that is, but I'm it. She's not calling me poet, she's calling me poet, so I'm going to be a poet. Whatever this poetry thing is, that's what I am now. Mm. Um, I remember making that decision, but also being fortunate enough that her her and her her partner, again, the the man who's now her husband, they're both playwrights, um, uh, very successful playwrights in in the Latino New York um, theater scene. Um, and they've even, I think they've, they've done like consultant work for shows like Power on TV. Oh, wow. But uh, anyway, she really agreed to mentor me. She, she, we started developing a relationship and her and her husband would take me to like jazz concerts and museums. Like I had never been to a museum oh, before. Oh, wow. The first time I remember being 16 and going to see a Dali exhibit at the Metropolitan Museum of Art with them. Wow. Um, and then when I turned 17, they, they were like, well, why don't you intern at our theater company? <sighs> 
and and so they I spent I basically lived with them in the summers when I wasn't in school wow. and um you know do all the like real basic stuff like get the actors coffee and like sweep the stage and then work my way up to like oh we're gonna let you run lights wow you know to to filling in at rehearsals and stuff and really getting this whole other education through them um through the theater oh my goodness know? how amazing is that and then like I that I love how this all comes together, Vincent. Like you go up that mountain, you come, this is after you come down from the mountain um, and that you actually had the courage to share your writing and your poetry. Like you were, you had the courage to say that I write to her, you know, like that's really beautiful. And then like the string of events that come from that. That's a, that's a, that's a beautiful story. I love that. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate that. I, I think, um, even when I look at it, sometimes it doesn't feel real, mm. you know. But um, my mentor, her name is Carmen Rivera. Um, I think that she would say she's very, she very much believes in like cosmic forces and that kind of thing. Uh. And so I think that 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 she would very much say if she was hearing me retell this story mm. um, that led to her mentoring me, that you know I had opened up myself to the universe mm. and and you know, asked my, asked the universe for this thing and the universe provided. Um, and then it was my responsibility. I, I know she would say, well, it was your responsibility to, to answer that call. And you did. Uh-huh. And that's what, that's how those doors got opened, you know? So I, I think yeah. that that's one, one, one way to look at it, I think. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I, I, it makes me think of too, when I was, you know, in my teaching days, like I would always, love to tell someone, you know, I taught PE and it was just like, if I saw some athletic ability in someone, I would always make sure I would let them know because a lot of, a lot of my students didn't think of themselves as athletic at all. You know, it's like, no, there's something there, you know, and just having someone actually say that and, and point it out to you, I think has such a big impact because we don't always get to hear those things and starting to begin to see yourself in that way. It's really powerful. It can really, it can really like just shift shift things for you and in, in your in your path so that was i love that story vincent yeah it, it can ch- honestly the power of naming it can mm-hmm. change your life and i think that that's one of the things i really try to do in my own teaching practice now is that you know i think that there's a lot of misguided ideas about what a teacher does and, mm. and what what it means to educate and for me uh yes i'm teaching a skill set i'm teaching a craft i'm teaching certain ways to think critically but the most important thing that I do sometimes, or I work with a lot of students that are ELL, English language mm. learners, first-generation immigrants, uh, students of color, working class, and, and there are issues of confidence coming, yeah. you know, because, because of the ways in which this country's built on class and race, that a lot of times young people are in these situations where they're certainly not being told by our leaders and our larger culture that they're valuable. Mm. And then sometimes they're dealing with, you know, internal acts of like racism and classism and sexism. And so this is all to say that like what I have found is that sometimes my job is just to tell them you're really smart. You know? Yeah. Um, and a, a big one I use a lot is, um, and I got this from the poet Juan Felipe Herrera, because he talks about having become a poet because he, you know, Spanish was his first language, and um, he was very shy to speak in English, so he didn't talk as a kid. But a gentleman that was a friend of his mother said to him one day, when he was like five years old, you have a beautiful voice, mm. and, and how that changed something for him. So, like, that's something I use a lot with my students. I say to them, you have a beautiful voice. Uh, your accent, you're, uh, you're a thick accent, it's beautiful, it's gorgeous, it's music, you should talk more often in English. And and I think those things, you know, that, that power of naming, that power mm-hmm. of language is really, really vital. Yeah, that's really beautiful. I'm sorry, I just got tangential, tangential there, I know. No, <laughs> no, not at all. That was really beautiful. I, I love that. You know, and it, kind of, it does actually kind of tie into some things I was going to ask you about, because when I think of art and poetry, I think of someone who's really tuned in, someone who is paying yeah. attention and like just taking notice of their surroundings, the feelings of others, their feelings, and like... Is that something that resonates with you? Does that feel true to you? Uh, in, in terms of artists, I, I mean, I think that to me that 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 is what makes an artist. Yeah. That is an artist. Like yeah. a, for me, you just gave the definition. Um, and I know that there's a lot of debate even amongst us artists what an artist is. Mm. But I, I, I talk a lot, especially amongst friends 
with a couple drinks when I go on one of my, my rants that there's a difference between in America we always confuse artists with entertainers mm. um, and that has to do with issues of commodity and capitalism mm. but, I, but I also think it has to do in general with the fact that in a, in a, in a culture that we have that doesn't really value certain kinds of sacred rituals and practices of introspection that mm. they just don't understand what artists do they think oh a painter makes a painting and someone buys it uh, you know, a bunch of people put, come together and write a play and put on a play and you pay for a ticket and you're entertained for two hours. Yeah. Or someone, someone writes a poem and performs it at a bar and open mic and, and you, you know, you get to applaud for a few minutes. Um, or someone writes a song and it's pretty and it's probably usually a breakup song or, yeah. or an I love you song and, and that, you know, stimulates my, my, my head for three minutes. But I think that an artist, like... Both artists and entertainers do those things in terms of the product. But the difference is, is that an, an artist is cultivating a way of life mm. um, and an inner life in which they're, they're, they're communicating those things that are, are, are difficult sometimes yeah. for us in, in our regular life to communicate and process. And they're making them like cogent and material for us. Like, I, I often use it, the metaphor, and I don't want to get, I'm not an expert in this stuff, so I don't want to get too heavy into it, but, you know, one of the things was Jim Morrison talked a lot about shamans and shamanism. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I remember reading about shamans, and they were the tribe's healers, right? Mm -hmm. And they would sing and dance and recite poems and tell stories and choreograph and even paint, mm -hmm. paint their bodies, and, and, and they would cultivate an experience. And the goal of that experience was to unify the tribe mm. um, in times when the tribe needed to heal, in times when there was famine, in times when they were going go to go to war. Um, and in those performances also, stories about the history of the tribe would come through and also prophecies and projections, right? Mm. So the, the, the shaman becomes like this conduit. And it's interesting because the language doesn't matter. That, that element and that dynamic is the same. I remember going to school for theater. Yeah. and being taught that I was an instrument. My acting mm -hmm. coach always talked about, you are an instrument. Um, he would talk about how the definition of the word inspire means to breathe in. Mm -hmm. That my job as an actor, as a performer, was to tune my instrument, right? If you just pick up a saxophone, you play it, not great sounds are going to come out. Yeah. It might not be music. You've got to tune that instrument first, and then you've got to learn how to use that instrument. Your body's an instrument, and then you are a conduit you breathe in the world, and what you breathe out is art. You breathe out something that's material where you've processed the world for your audience in a way that yeah. allows them to see the world in a different way. Yes. That allows them to maybe get in touch with something they knew what they were feeling, but they didn't have words for it, mm -hmm. or they didn't have a concrete image for it. And so that, that, that is the artist. Let's, that's our occupation. Mm. That's the work that we do. You know, yeah. um, on top of the work of, 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 you know, community, which which is certainly like the most important thing to me is community. Yeah. Well, so in a world that, you know, like we're taught that our feelings are, are often a sign of weakness and, you know, especially for, you know, for boys and men, I think in particular, like how do you nurture, how do you cultivate that skill of being able to tap into those, you know, those feelings or to be able to tap into those perspective, you know, be able to shift perspectives and be able to help people see things in different ways. Like how, how do you practice tuning in for yourself? Does that make sense? I, I think so. And, and I think it, I think that's again, where art comes into play for me. Yeah. Because, because it really did become an instrument okay. for me. I, I definitely it. grew up around a lot of tax, toxic masculinity but I also think we all have. I think that, unfortunately, we're living in a world where probably the greatest virus that has spread around the world not even, is not even coronavirus. It's toxic masculinity. Mm -hmm. And all the, all the way up to the Oval Office mm -hmm. and into the, the, the buildings of corporations where CEOs perform it, and, and then they pass it all the way down the ranks. Um, into the education system, out into the street. I mean, toxic masculinity is, is really, really viral. And so, and men yeah. are bred to, to be, to, men are bred 
to think and to fully believe that that toxic masculinity is the definition of maleness yeah. and manhood. Yeah. And and so when I was really young, I was taking that in and not understanding it. But what's interesting is that my body was rejecting it. I've mm. always been an extremely sensitive person. Um, and I mean, I was made. I I would cried over everything. Mm. Um, like every everything made me cry when I was a child, and then I was made fun of so much for it. I remember again one of those decisions I made was that I wasn't going to cry, mm. and so then I went through like mm. probably a two decade period where like crying was something that I was not going to afford myself. Now that I'm in middle age, I'm like so <laughs> menschy about it. I cry at everything now. I, 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 I see a music video and I start weeping or oh, a moment in, in some sappy show. But but it, I, I don't think that that's the only thing that's that's the only expression, by yeah. the way, of something that's an alternative to toxic masculinity. It's just an yeah. example. But anyway, this is all to say that like, I think that when I found art, art gave me permission. Because this is, the, you know, mm. the other thing, I think that that there's queer theory involved. I mm. think that there was a queerness that was important to me. I have a poem in my book about this, in, in my new book, Tertulia, where I was called a lot of homophobic slurs as a child because I was so sensitive. And and in the, in the beginning, when you're very young, you, you want to push against it because, yeah. you know, it, because you know it's so nasty and negative. But then you come to a point where you're like, well, what's so bad about being those things anyway? And because what I found was that in high school and then moving into college, especially I went to an art school, went to theater, um, so many of my friends were, were queer, you know. Yeah. And so I realized that actually queerness is part of my own identity. And so I liked to wear makeup and wear skirts and get dressed up and perform yeah. um, and, and be different things and, and, and like explore other aspects of my own feelings and attitudes. Yes. But I will say this, that I think that I, I developed a habit of seeing my art as the only means to doing that. Oh. And so what happened was, was when I was not in a space where art was the practice, that I was still performing my own versions of toxic masculinity that I had engendered and internalized. Um, and I really only can account, I, don't, I can't even claim that I've, I've overcome all of that. Yeah. But any progress that I have made, I, I really credit to being... Um, to being what my wife and I call a queer heteronormative, a, a queer, a queer, a queer hetero marriage, we call it. Got it. Um, so, our our relationship is one that's be, that's based on not like even though I'm a man and she's a woman, we we try not to perform anything that's seen as heteronormative in our in our relationship, and see that there's a a, a spectrum and a and a prism of what my gender identity can be and hers and what that means to each other. And I think what that's led over uh, 20 years is to us questioning ourselves and our relationship and our behaviors in ways that are really he like healthy and fruitful. Yeah. So I'd like to think that I've made a lot of progress outside of, you know, questioning masculinity through my art by being in a relationship hmm. that's really given me the space to bravely look at how, in just in my day-to-day -day life, I'm performing is issues of masculinity, and, and how can I break those things, and how can I resist those things, and be very comfortable with, with something that doesn't feel so heteronormative. So I think, like, yeah, I, I have to credit that, you know. That's, yeah, no, that's really beautiful, and just having, you know, a partner that you can feel safe exploring and being curious together, and yeah, that's, that's really a, a beautiful description of that. And actually, speaking of, of your part, you know, your partner, Grizel, like, I know that for the two of you, like, it, you guys do a wonderful job of, like, fostering community. And I know you mentioned earlier that community is, like, one of the most important things to you. Um, and is this something that you guys work at, like, and are intentional about creating? Or is this something that kind of has come naturally to you? Um, and you don't have to talk about it as, like, you know, as a partnership. But it seems like it does kind of work together from, my, from the outside eyes, from my perspective, from a distance. Um, yeah, and I was just wondering, like, how intentional um, are you about creating community and, and why? Why is that so important to you? Um, yeah, I, it, I, I don't want to speak for her per yeah. se, but I, but I can speak to the, the, the points of contact for her and I and where it overlaps. Um, I, community is incredibly important to both of the both of us. I would think that so, I know with me 
that that has everything to do from coming from uh, a dysfunctional and abusive like family structure when I was young because I did not turn to family when I was young and it was very isolating for most of my young life um, because in order to get out of that toxicity, I actually had to remove myself from it. Got it. And no person can live in, you know, on an island alone. And so I really had to, um, had to find other ways of connecting with people in ways that were healthy. And I think being mentored and, and through the theater was one way, because mm. theater is a community arts, collaborative art. But I also just really came to hold sacred friendship. Um, because at my, at my lowest points of life, when things were the toughest, when I had nothing, when, when I didn't know I was going to make it out the other end, mm. it, was, it was friends that got me through those things. Um, and then, you know, I, I think when I got older, I started to realize that the nothing I had ever done, if, mm. if I have accomplished anything at all, it, it really is true that I, I, none of it could have been done alone. You know, any poem I write, I did not write that poem alone. That poem was written with, you know, all of my friends, all of my former students, all of my teachers, all of those relatives that I do have connections with, colleagues that have inspired me and shown me the way. They're all guiding my hand through that, you know. And not to mention, even in a more literal sense, people that have done things for me that they didn't have to do to help my career move forward to to you know go to bat for me for opportunities that I didn't have before and that really doesn't end so I think for me what's become important is really living a life of that's centered on relationships and and an authentic exchange between individuals and between groups of people Um, I have another poem about that my first book where I'm fully convinced that like nothing nothing that has ever been accomplished by human beings that wasn't a great leap forward. Hmm. It, it did not happen without a mass group of people coming together. Like you look at all of, all of the social progress we, we, we've ever had mm-hmm. that had to do with mass movements of people, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. The civil rights movement, the women's movement, like even, even when I just think about being Puerto Rican, like the young lords and, and the way that they brought the, the New York Puerto Rican community together to demand for rights for people, Um, even education movements, people that have decided they were going to move forward and resist kind of industrial and oppressive models of education. I go down the line. I mean, you look at everything to like, you know, the Arab Spring and to Rear Square to, you know, resisting dictatorships in Latin America. It's everywhere. Everywhere was people coming together and saying, we are, we want we want the right thing to happen. We want to build something. And so I've always been moved by that, and I think that that's why I've made this decision that if my life is going to have any meaning at all, mm. it, it's going to have to be in service of communities. You know, and really that's like the measure for me. Mm. Yeah, and I love that because it's so, it's actually, I feel like popular culture so often focuses on the individual, right? And this idea of individualism within our society that, you know, you just suck it up and get it done and, you know, and uh, and you climb this ladder on your own or something or the stairway. It's like, and the, the reality, I agree with you, is that, you know, we need each other to, and I love how you described it. Like your, any poem you write, you like your former students are like a part of that. And like all the people that even make your poetry, that's that's really beautiful to, to think about. And it makes me wonder, Vincent, like, what like what inspires your poetry like what does what does that process look like for you you know when you're when you're sitting down to write are you are you just exploring ideas for yourself or does like a poem come to you and you have to write it down what does your process look like oh that's that's always been a tough one when when folks have asked (laughs) for that because only because i i and i don't know what it is for other artists but i have different approaches Ah. And, 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 and I have different reasons for turning to the page. Um, and so I think when I was very young, actually it was very clear for me. I, I wrote because I was angry, mm. <laughs> you know, because of the things I was dealing with. And I, I turned to the page whenever there was a point of anger and there was no other means to process it and no other means to, like, fight back against it. 
Uh, and I think that that's still there to a large point. I think in some ways that might be my shortcoming, that my word tends to be strongest when it's coming from a point of anger. Mm. Uh, though like, though like um, Rage Against Machine sings, anger is a gift. Yeah. If it's used correctly, yeah. it can be a gift. But it shouldn't be the only, the only motivation and the only point of contact. Mm. So I, I, I do think that, and also my different mediums speak differently. So like with theater, already the, the reason for, for, for writing a play and coming to that is community. Mm. Because I, I can already see that going down the line, if I write this play... I'm going to get to get into a room with a lot of really cool and talented and brilliant people and, like, put this thing together and give it life. Yeah. And that already is motivation. I think with poetry, uh, especially with the last book, I, maybe it sounds redundant because I already spoke to it, but with, with Tertullia, a lot of those poems were written in the classrooms with my students. Oh, cool. And so, and so a lot of that stuff came out of form work. So, so I actually practiced a type of theater that uh, um, was created by this Brazilian theater artist, Augusto Boal, the theater of the oppressed. And his whole methodology is that theater is actually, it's not, again, it's not just a, a commercial entity where you write something, you put it on stage, people pay a ticket. But theater can actually be a way to build community and actually to problem solve in those communities. Mm. So, so I do, even when I'm teaching poetry, I do a lot of, of, of his, his methodologies, which is to do a lot of forum work. So even before we write poems, I go into spaces with young people and we talk about oppressions and what, what's, what's oppressive in your school, what's oppressive in your family, what's oppressive in your community, what's oppressive that's coming from Washington, D.C. Huh. What, what, what are these forces that intrude in our lives that create inequalities that cause us to police ourselves and each other? Hmm. And, and we, so we have these forms and we talk about these things and then we research them together. And then we go to the page hmm. to kind of engage with those things. So I would do those things in the classroom with students, and then when it was time to write, I would write alongside them. So a lot of the work came out of thinking about some of our shared oppressions um, or, or the intersectionality of oppressions, even where they're not shared, right? Where are they intersectional? Um, I, such an important and powerful word that yeah. I think we should be talking about right now. Yeah, for sure. And so... And so there, I wasn't coming from anger. I wasn't even coming from somewhere that was, you know, singular. I was coming from, I'm writing as part of this community, and we're doing, doing this labor together. So I think that that's another way where I'm writing. And right now, in quarantine, I'm discovering a whole other way to, to, to approach my writing, which is almost kind of like a reclamation of sorts from going back to the beginning, which is to write for kind of play, Huh. and experimentation. I think that I've certainly experienced cabin fever. I'm such an extrovert yeah. and such a community-centered person that quarantines made me a little crazy. And, and in the beginning, I was so depressed I wasn't writing. Mm. But in the last month or two, I've been doing just kind of almost uh, informal experiments to, to just enjoy writing again and enjoy like participating in art, even though I'm just alone in my house. Um, so I'm, I think I'm inventing new a new process right now for myself or a new way of like engaging. And I don't know what it, what'll make of it. It's funny. I don't even know if a book will come out of it. And, and, and uh, at my stage of my career, I'm supposed to be thinking like, what's the next uh, book? Uh -huh. I don't know if anything I'm writing will be a thing. But right now, it, I'm just enjoying the fact that like um, I play some music and I open up a notebook and I come to the page just for the sake of coming to the page. Oh, I love that, Vincent. I, I, I mean, just even the idea of adding play into it. I'm a big, you know, proponent of, you know, incorporating like a playful approach. And it doesn't mean just like, haha, you know, silly things, just being open to being curious and exploring and testing and trying new things. So I think that is so cool. And I can't wait to see like, whether it amounts to anything or not, like, it just sounds like a fun discovery to go on or fun little journey to go on to see what it might lead to. That's, that's really cool. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I'm big on play, too. I, I actually do workshops on this with adults about play, because play does not necessarily mean silliness, although yeah. I'm a big fan of yeah. silliness. there's nothing wrong with play silliness. Is, play is about wonder. Yes. Play is about experimenting without the, the filters. Or, again, Augusto Boal talks about um, the cops in the head that we have, mm -hmm. that, that society and its oppressive structure engenders in our brain little cops. So we, so we end up, and he says, this is how power works. Power has gotten so good 
that they don't need to have as many police because we they've ta- they've taught us to police ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And you see it in adults. There's so many ways in which we police ourselves so that we don't do certain things, we don't behave a certain way, or we don't you know confront issues a certain way. Yeah. And so for me, play is about getting rid of the cops in the head and yes. saying, I'm not going to judge what's happening. You're not going to judge what's happening. We're, we're going to remember we were children and we, you know, I, I always tell a story of one of my dearest friend's daughter. I remember going to see my friend and she was like seven or eight years old. And I went to their house and she ran up and she said hi to me. And I said, oh, you know, Mujnir, how are you doing? What's going on with you? And she just came up to me and she said, I'm a waterfall. <laughs> right? Yes. And, and then she started acting like a waterfall. Oh. And, and, and I thought to myself, that's it right there. Yeah. You know, and, and I thought to myself then, and I, and I think now, like, if I want to be a waterfall, who cares that I'm a 45-year-old man? I'm a waterfall <laughs> yeah. right now. Yes. You know, and, and for me, that's what play is about. Yes. And I think it's really important because uh, whether you're an artist or not, allowing yourself that mm-hmm. um, allows for the same reason why play is important for children, which is what A.S. Neal talks about. He, he's, a, he's an educator who formed Summerhill School in England, is that one of the most... The, the most important key to education is discovery. Yes. And play leads to discovery. Yeah. Once you, once you get the police out of the room. You are talking you my know? language right now. Yeah. No, for sure. Even, you know, I created a little program um, called Becoming Aligned, and it's, it's all about self-discovery. And it's just how do we get that inner critic that is, you know, softened in our head, which just makes me think of the, you know, the policing in our heads. And how do we help that um, – how do we start to short circuit that or acknowledge it, but understand that there's other ways to navigate around it and to start becoming curious and compassionate to ourselves and exploring um, other ways of navigating through the world that besides what we've been taught and told is what we should be and how we should act and how we should behave. So you're totally talking my language there, Vincent. That's I, I'm going to have to get those names from you and make sure I have them written down correctly so I can add, <laughs> include them in the in the show notes. So that's really cool. Yeah. As a teacher, sure. as a teacher, um, what have you learned about yourself? Like, did you always imagine yourself teaching? Um, <laughs> and, and like, what, you know, how did that come to be? And, and what did you learn? What have you been learning about yourself through, through, you know, the act of being a teacher, through the process of being a teacher? Wow, I, I don't know that there's time for that one. I know, that's um, a long one. Because <laughs> it would take me like, that, that's a whole, that's like a five-volume book. I know. Um, I, you, you heard me laugh because it, it's interesting. Like, I am such a devout educator. Like, mm. I say that teaching is my religion, mm. right? Education is my religion. Um, but it's ironic to me, right? It's situational irony because... I never. I hated school so much mm. because it was such an oppressive environment for me yeah. that I never thought that I would want to spend my life in classrooms. Um, and it really only happened by happenstance. And kind of again, it's it's the cosmos, right? My mentor would say it's the cosmos taking care of you. Mm. You you ask the cosmos for something, and it responds, and it may respond in a way that you don't necessarily expect, but you've got to answer that call, right? Yeah. And so when I was graduating undergraduate, which, which was a really turbulent time for me, uh, and I think it was a really turbulent time in the country in ways that people didn't see, right? So this is um, 1998. Okay. So we're, we're like totally in the, in the throes of like the Bill Clinton scandal and like yeah. the rise of the right. So like the president's democratic, but, but the right is, you know, I think that's when Newt Gingrich was Speaker of the House. And like, yeah. um, it, it, it was just a very... I, I don't know what it was. I, it was my undergrad years, first of all, that made me very politically active. So I think I was seeing a lot of title changes being involved in activism uh, that was concerning me. Hmm. And so when I graduated and everyone's asking this question, what are you going to do with your life? I remember after graduation being with a bunch of our college friends. And I was kind of like straight out of a movie, like sitting around a bar asking ourselves, like, OK, what's the next step? And and me just saying, like, I don't really care. I just don't want to be here in the United States wow. right now. And and my friends, some of my friends being really offended by that, not understanding that, like, if you're, if you, you know, I'm Puerto Rican. I come from colonized people. Yeah. If, you're ha- if you're even semi-awake, you question the fact that, you know, 
our, our island is like still a colony after 500 years. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think some of my more privileged friends didn't understand where I was coming from. So I went on this big tirade about why I didn't want to be in the U.S. anymore. Mm-hmm. And it just so happened that one of my friend's partners was there listening to this. And she was like, well, are you serious about leaving the country? And I was like, the first opportunity that comes to me to, to get out of the borders of the United States for an extended period of time, I am going to take it. And she said, well, that's interesting that you should say that because my mother owns a school in Turkey. <laughs> wow. And, and is teaching something that, that, that you would be interested in. And I lied because I was not interested in teaching, but I was interested in going halfway around the world. Um, and, and, you know, I also would say, I think what was intriguing was her and I had a conversation that night, I remember, and like, you know, also Islamophobia was rising. Yeah, yeah. And and again, as like a child of colonized people, I, w- I was already questioning the ways in which films were portraying Muslim people yeah. and the ways in which the Middle East was portrayed by like our leaders. And I said, you know what, let me just go firsthand and, and, and learn for myself. So wow. I, I, she kind of arranged for an interview and I, and I took this job and I moved all the way to Middle East to teach, not knowing how to teach. Um, I probably wasn't that great at it. Um, it, it, you know, in some ways it was a very rocky journey, but it activated something in me that I was like, okay, maybe I want to do this teaching thing. But, you know, I came back a year later and I ended up taking a work in the publishing industry because again, I was like, okay, I'm a writer. Yeah. That's really what I want to be doing. But I ended up being like a glorified copy machine, <laughs> you know, like a human copy <laughs> yes. machine at, at Dell Publishing and really hating the gig. And then again, someone coming to me, um, actually my mentor, and she, she was like, well, you know, my mother's going to become a principal at a, at a school, at a public school. If you really want to get her publishing, I know that you, you're spending your teaching. Do you want to do that? So, again, I just kind of hopped on that bus and said, you know what? Wow. Teaching in Newark, I, def- I love Newark. Newark is such an amazing and vibrant community, and I, I already have a skill set. Let me just try it. And I think it was there that I, I learned to start loving teaching, although I didn't love the public school experience, which is why I left two years later okay. to become a teaching artist because it, it just made more sense for me to teach on my terms as an artist yeah. and not. And I was not a very good public school teacher, but I do feel very confident that I'm a very good teaching artist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Wow. And it's like you've just you say like um it just reminds me back to you know you coming down from the mountain and being like I'm gonna say yes to opportunities when they come and it just seems like you saying yes to some of these moments that have kind of like led you down different paths it's it's interesting it's really it's really fun to hear you to hear you tell those stories Vincent because and especially now and and this is for another day but I do think that social media has created a larger culture of fear that I've never seen before. Like, my students are way, le- are way less brave than they were 15 years ago. Mm. Um, and so I talk about bravery a lot in my classroom. Yeah. And so when, when, when I tell them my own narrative, I, also, I talk to them a lot and say, you know what, y'all are looking at that feeling in your gut the wrong way. Like, yeah. fear, fear is, like, amazing. You know, mm-hmm. fear is such a good thing. Like, when I am afraid... That is a that is a great opportunity right there. Yeah, you know, and and so you know, I talked about like in these moments that I've shared with you and others throughout my life. I remember being totally afraid, but having taught myself that rather than retreat like I did when I was a child, I'm 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 going to move towards that thing that I'm afraid mm. because I there's a sense that on the other side of that, right? If I can get past this, there's another opportunity there. And even if it's not an opportunity that's, you know, the thing, what, I've, what, what I will have learned through the process of, like, jumping over that hurdle and going through that door is something that I'm going to end up carrying with me for the rest of my life, you know? Mm, I love that, Vincent. And I think, I think we're going to end on that one. That was just really beautiful. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your stories. Um, yeah, I, I listen to those, and they're definitely something that I find inspiring and uh, connect to. So I want to just thank you for your time, and thank you for being a part of the Becoming Aligned podcast. Thank you for having me. This is a really wonderful opportunity. Again, anytime I get a chance to talk with someone, <laughs> that, that's a good day for me. So this has been a real pleasure. So thank you for having me, Maureen. This is great. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Vincent. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. 
He has so many nuggets of wisdom. I could have talked to him forever. (laughs) So much resonated deeply with me that I won't have time to summarize here, but I'll try to touch on a few points. I loved his perspective on art, play, and education, and community. I always personally think of play as a way to shake off the armor that we wear. You know, that armor that may come in the form of people-pleasing and perfectionism. You know, I believe when we're in a state of play, we can forget about the shoulds and expand what we believe to be possible. So I love that he introduced me to the theater of the oppressed, and it was so fun to learn more about how he uses play in his work. I also love listening to him talk about the power of naming. He credited Juan Felipe Herrera for the saying that he uses with so many of his students. You have a beautiful voice. Ah, well, I can only imagine how powerful that is for the students he works with. I think it can be a powerful reminder for all of us. So I'd love to encourage you to sit with that reminder for yourself today. You have a beautiful voice. Mm. I'm curious, what did you find yourself thinking about and reflecting on after listening to this episode? Please share on my website, MaureenRyan.co, or on my Instagram page, Maureen underscore Ryan underscore. And please subscribe to the Becoming Aligned newsletter to hear more of my reflections on Becoming Aligned. And I also invite you to share your reflections there as well. So I'd love to see you um, in that community. Wishing you all the best. And thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Becoming Aligned. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Becoming Aligned and rate and review this podcast. I'm Maureen Ryan, and I hope you'll join us next time. Take care.